Welcome everyone to our podcast. My name is Alicia Swami. I'm here with my co-host, Eric Johnson. Keely is not with us today, but we do miss her and wish her well. We have Dr. Swami Halati here. He is the Global Program Manager for the Mycotoxin Risk Management Program for Trow Nutrition. And Trow Nutrition develops ways to sustainably raise healthy farm animals. And their portfolio includes feed specialties, additives, premixes, and nutritional models. Hello, everyone. I'd love to introduce you to Home Cleanse, formerly known as All-American Restoration. They are the first and only remediation company in the country specializing in remediating mold for people with underlying health conditions or mold sensitivities. They've quickly become the most recommended remediation company from doctors and mold inspectors nationwide. Visit them at homecleanse.com. Thank you so much, Dr. Halati, for joining us today. And we want to know, how is it going on that side of the world? It's all good. Thank you so much for inviting inviting me to this program. So yeah, it's June, so it's pretty hot, but the way I stay in India, it's not that bad, around 30 degrees so Celsius, by the way. So mm-hmm. yeah, all good. Things are going okay. What about you guys? Fantastic. We're doing well over here. Eric is in Lake Tahoe, California. I'm in Utah right now in a really nice campground. My husband and I are nomadic, so we travel around and work from our RV. So it's pretty fun. But, you know, I wanted to chat with you and I reached out because I recently saw that there was a world mycotoxin forum that happened in Italy. And I was very intrigued by this since, as you know, we are exposing mold. That is our group name. And we also love to chat with doctors and researchers and everyone within the field of mold and mycotoxins. And so I just wanted to chat more about What's going on in the in the world of mycotoxins and how is it affecting, I guess, basically feed for our animals? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think it was a great, great week in Parma, Italy, and scientists from all over the world, quite a few from U.S. as well, from Cornell University, and I think a few from a few other universities. I think, yeah, in Boston College also, there were some representatives there. So basically, this is not just animal feed-related forum. It's human, animal, as well as analytics. Analytics is quite a big part of mycotoxin analysis. Of course, the, there was some discussion on molds also because, you know, how do we manage the molds? Because they are the kind of a precursors for the, for the mycotoxins to be produced. So there are a lot of discussions on that, you know, prediction models. How do we model programs in such a way that you can predict the conditions that are responsible for mycotoxin production from, from the molds. So those were discussions, a lot of discussions on how the mycotoxin are impacting the food quality in Africa, for example, you know, how it is impacting the health of the people, uh, you know. So, yeah, and the emerging mycotoxins is, again, an important topic. And these mycotoxins are something which are Outside of the big six toxins, what we call in animal industry, Ophla, Okra, T2, Zia, Fimonosins, and I believe I missed the Okra toxin. So these are the major six toxins, what we analyze commercially, but there are a lot of discussion on emerging mycotoxins. There are some toxins which are becoming more prevalent, but they are not commercially analyzed today. So yeah, a lot of good discussions on how to produce the food in sustainable manner and also you know managing mycotoxins sustainably thank you for that explanation and something you mentioned that was really interesting is emerging mycotoxins could you maybe expand upon that a little bit more sure so these emerging mycotoxins are, are nothing but you know these are not regulated by fda or by european union and they are not frequently analyzed there are no commercially available kits to analyze these in feeds or food. But the, the researchers, the universities, and some of the institutions in US, in Europe especially, are finding increasing levels of these toxins. Just to give an example, there's a toxin called sterigmatocystine. There is a toxin called uh, eniatins, biuracin, mycophenolic acid. You know, quite a few of these are more toxic to humans also. Right. So, steric matter is a precursor for aflatoxin. So, 
If you don't manage a steric matocystin, the next step is to produce aflatoxin. So these are the emerging toxins. And the discussion was, you know, one of the participants, I think she was one of the main, uh, I would say, organizers. She said, well, I don't like to call it as emerging mycotoxins. Maybe we should call them as neglected mycotoxins because they're not really emerging, but they are there and we are just discovering them, right? So our some of, uh, our the literature is using as emerging mycotoxins, but I thought that was a very nice way to put it. They are not really emerging, but those are neglected mycotoxins. So yeah, we do in our organization keep a track on these toxins and also try to see how we can manage manage these, preventing their entry into the animal blood circulation and affecting liver and, and other organs. Thank you for that explanation. And I just went ahead and kind of reviewed what was discussed in that World Mycotoxin Forum. And I just wanted to point out a few things that were interesting to us. And so it says here, one of the lessons learned was exposome. Chronic low-dose exposure of multiple Mm. mycotoxins can potentially lead to synergistic effects in human carcinogenesis. And then the other one that was really interesting that I would like to expand upon with you is the effect of mycotoxins as predisposing factors in the pathogenesis of viral Mm. bacterial diseases and in yes. vaccine and therapy failure is still unclear. Now, are you seeing that in, in animal models right now? Is there? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. We do a lot of work. In fact, for my PhD at the University of Guelph in Canada, back in early 2000, I also looked at what is the impact of these fusarium toxins on the immune response. In pigs, we usually measure some of the most common diseases. Also in poultry, we measure Newcastle disease, infectious bursal disease. And also, yeah, these are some of the diseases depending upon which species. So we measure these and we, you know, there will be a control animal without any mycotoxin, then with mycotoxin and then with vaccination. So we do see, you know, some of the mycotoxins, especially the trichothesines mycotoxins. I heard some of your podcasts before. There was a bit of a discussion on those tachybacteries and other mycotoxins. So, yeah, definitely those mycotoxins are protein synthesis inhibitors. So, practically, you know, anything that is protein, immunoglobulins are protein, right? So, basically, you have a less antibodies produced. And, and a lot of researchers in Europe, particularly working on, you know, E. coli. How does the E. coli infection increases in pigs when you have the co- in a concurrent contamination with mycotoxins? How does it impact the Campylobacter, Salmonella, uh, and quite a few, quite a few other human-related diseases also they are looking at. Usually, you know, in our, our industry, we use animals as a model to study the especially the pigs, is a good model to study the human challenges. So, you know, quite a few researchers from human medicine use this because it is more close physiologically. The pigs are more closer to the, to the humans. So, yeah, certainly. And we in animal industry, you know, we look at commercial aspects because if more bird dies, more pigs die, you know, it impacts commercially. Also, animal welfare is also very important. So, certainly these are contributing to lower the the immune potency of the of the animals. Wow, that's really interesting. And you know, maybe it's it wasn't clear to me what you explained. So, are you seeing issues in terms of your you know animals getting vaccinated, their usual vaccines, and then yes. being exposed to mold, and then mycotoxins, and then having you know these emerging diseases that you guys haven't seen before, or? Yeah, I think I think there are under experimental conditions for sure they are proven, you know, because in, in field is very difficult because in field situation, in field situation also we have seen, you know, there will be two farms, pretty much the same conditions, right? Only the field is different, right? So you wouldn't expect the management changes because they are within 100 meters, 200 meters distance. So weather is the same, but the the feed quality one form may be supplied by a different feed miller. So when you have mycotoxins, we have seen incidences only in the form where the, where the feed quality is poor. So that means these mycotoxins are lowering the ability of the animals to mount the immune response. Even though you give a vaccine to the animal, 
so that the the objective of vaccination is just to you know produce these viral specific antibodies or bacteria specific antibodies but if if the mycotoxins are compromising the protein synthesis or the antibody synthesis through different mode of action then of course even though you are vaccinating the animal it will not be protected so you know that's that's where the where the challenge is uh, what we are facing so i think very comparable to corona right some people vaccinated well protected some are not because maybe their protein the the nutritional intake is is not there so yeah th- those are all have a, a impact on the on the susceptibility to diseases thank you for that yeah that's kind of where i was going with that <clears throat> that question eric did you have any questions to ask on top of that i feel like you have something brewing there <laughs> <laughs> There was some speculation that Epstein-Barr virus behaved much differently in Africa than in the United States due to the mycotoxin contamination of the food in Africa, and we had a more pristine food supply. And is it possible that now the mycotoxins are catching up in the USA, so EBV is acting out of control for much the same reason? Absolutely. You know, I I worked a lot in the U.S. from, I would say, 2000. almost 2004 to 2012 i was there so i worked quite a bit in canada and us so you know that some odd years you have very high levels of fusarium toxins especially don in us you can pretty much you wouldn't find a grain without don deoxynevolanol in in the entire us so absolutely if you have a poor quality raw materials especially if you have too much of rainfall during the flowering season of corn you tend to have more vomitoxin zeralanan in that year so you know there is certainly a nice correlation there is no doubt about that in at least in humans in animals we have proven that beyond doubt and there's some question about whether these toxins are stored in the fatty tissues and then released slowly going out through the intestines is this proven is this a fact <clears throat> some of some of them are lipophilic so they do they are soluble in lipid media but I, i think you know it most of these cha- challenges we have seen at the liver level for example in the liver we tend to see accumulation of these these mycotoxins that's why sometimes we jokingly say in asian regions you know you can eat the chicken meat but try not to eat the livers because you can have high levels of aflatoxins in livers so um, yeah i think scientifically see there there can be a slow release of that but i think most of the work so far has been looked at kidneys livers these organs and you know how potentially the toxins can be released over a, over a period of time there's a great deal of debate about whether ammonia is effective at denaturing these mycotoxins i understand that grains are often treated with ammonia and it seems to be relatively effective does this translate into the fixing sick buildings ha huh. well is ammonia treatment for aflatoxin has been Uh, i would say tried since four decades three or four decades first i think in asian region african african region they tried but i would say it was it was not very practical to be honest with you because there a lot of i would say hazardous situation right because it has to be in air tight situation where within the grains there should be a proper distribution of ammonia they used to use ammonium propionate and uh, different salts forms high you know dihydrous uh, form also but so far my knowledge goes so eric people consider it is not practical and that's why i think it was banned in many countries i'm not sure how much the use in africa now but i would say in the last 15 20 years we don't hear a lot of people using that except for this world mycotoxin forum there was a research from canada one of the students she was talking about using this ammoniation technology to break down ergot toxins you know ergot alkaloids i'm sure you guys know in the us in canada is a big challenge in humans also she was she has done some research showing some promise that ammoniation can break down these ergot toxins i asked her the same question well it has been done for a long time and we didn't use it for practical reasons and why you are doing this research and she said that in canada they are using ammonia treatment in a different way so it's there is no human exposure so i think that's what she was trying to explain i think they do apply this ammonia for different reasons and in that process ergot toxins are also managed but as per my, my knowledge goes it's a very difficult procedure 
to to implement. I know people have certainly tried to drench their entire house with ammonia, and it hasn't really paid off. <laughs> yes, yes, because it has to be. It has to. You know, the mycotoxin, as you all know, they are embedded within the matrix. They are not floating around, right? Whereas the whereas the molds will be floating around, but the mycotoxins are really inside these grains and the feed. So I always say this, you know, some many of our customers, they ask me, Dr. Swami, you know, can I put your toxin binder into your feed? And after, you know, after putting that, if I analyze your feed again, my feed, will the toxin will be lesser? I said, no, it will remain the same because the, the release of the toxin takes place only inside the gut. You need to have the right moisture, right pH, physiological conditions for the toxin to be released from the feed. So it is not something outside the feed. The toxins are inside the feed. You need to have a, a proper digestion. Just like to release proteins, fatty acids, you need to really digest the feed. So uh, if that doesn't happen, which is not going to happen in, in your ammoniation within the building, so then definitely it's not effective. At this forum in Italy, was there any discussion of the emerging problem of myalgic encephalomyelitis chronic fatigue syndrome? No, no, there wasn't. Is it more on the human side? Yeah. Okay. No, honestly, it was. It wasn't there. A lot of papers on aflatoxins, to be honest with you. And yeah, there was a very interesting study about nitrogen application to the soil, and how that will have an impact in reducing the molds and mycotoxins. Mm-hmm. And it's in a funny way that they were saying that you know the all the urine urine wastage from the major municipalities around the world, you know, they should be channelized to the fields because there is a lot of nitrogen inside. And this was from your, your country, Cornell University. I forgot the professor's name. And she's doing a project on that. And also there was one more interesting paper. What they were saying is that if you use mold-contaminated, mycotoxin-contaminated feed, you know, and feed them to insects, I believe, and then you, there is a way to control the mycotoxins because they say that the insects somehow can take care of these mycotoxins. I haven't heard before, but some of these things being discussed, but not about this particular disease you mentioned, Eric. Well, Cornell University is one of the leading research centers for MECFS. Okay. And after analyzing all the reactivated viruses, the fungal infections, the bacterial pathogens, they seem to be focused on intestinal dysbiosis. Okay. There's something wrong, terribly wrong in the intestinal microbiota of sure. chronic fatigue syndrome patients. And they can't figure out why. Mm. And they've been asked to look for the effects of mycotoxins because theoretically, if they're stored in the tissues and can come out, released through the intestines, they could be causing some damage on the way out and causing this kind of disruption. Yes. But as of yet, they haven't made this connection. Yeah, no, this uh, ruminal, I would say in ruminants also, ruminant animals like cows, there is an effort to prove the ruminant dysbacteriosis by the mycotoxins because you guys might be aware of uses of a lot of silage in the dairy industry, fermented food products, fermented corn silage, and, and there are microbes within that silage plus the mycotoxins, you know, they are known to compromise the, the the microbial population, the beneficial microbial population within the rumen. And if that happens, it can cause ruminal dysbacteriosis, or the same thing can happen to humans as well. There is no doubt. And in pigs and poultry also, now a lot of research is going on what is the impact of mycotoxins on the, the gut health. That is the big topic. You know, millions of dollars going into that. And particularly in all the mycotoxins, one common link they're seeing is the impact of the toxins on the tight junction proteins. So I think that is something maybe these researchers should look into, you know, how these mycotoxins are, this pathogen maybe impacting the tight junction proteins. And these tight junction proteins are very important to prevent the entry of pathogens and mycotoxin into the blood circulation. Fascinating, because there's a great deal of discussion about that. And they say they've seen this exact type of dysfunction, but can't figure out a cause for it. But as of yet, are still strangely reluctant to look into the mycotoxin factor. 
So perhaps if we could put your Cornell University researcher together with our researcher, we yes. might be able to get somewhere. Absolutely. I think I would be very happy to do that. I have our card. I had you know quite a bit of discussion with her. So that would be nice. And there are a few people I know in North Carolina State University, there are a few professors there working on mycotoxins in animals. So yeah. And I think that's very important. Dysbacteriosis seems to be a, a cause for many of the challenges uh, today. And uh, of course, you know, the, the food we eat in a slightly diff, you know, better than what the animals eat, right? Because at the end of the day, we eat cornflakes, they eat corn, you know, byproducts. So I, I think I, with my experience, I can say that, you know, we tend to be more cautious, the animal industry about mycotoxins than the human industry. So, you know, I may be making a big statement, but I think we are, are much more cautious in what we are feeding to the animals. And we do analyze very frequently. We have a rapid testing tools within 15, 20 minutes. We can analyze the mycotoxins. And at the feed mills, they decide should they should accept the raw materials or not to accept, not based on the moisture content of the raw materials or on the water activity, but based on mycotoxins. So I'm sure the human industry does that. But I, you know, the dawn levels, you know, we need to keep an eye. Uh, along with the dawn, maybe, Eric, this is important also to put a bit of focus on masked forms of mycotoxins. Many of the toxins, especially dawn, is in a free form as well as a bound form. And what we analyze in the laboratory is only free form. We don't analyze the masked form or the bound form. Usually these toxins are bound to your glucose molecule. So, you know, you cannot pick that up in the analysis in the lab, but they will be available for absorption at the intestinal level to the animals because within the stomach, uh, within the intestine particularly, and also the microbes break down the glycosidic bond, which is between the toxin and the mycotoxins. Sorry, the toxin and the, and the glucose molecule. It's a simple glycosidic bond. They remove it. And all of a sudden, at the intestinal level, you see more mycotoxin issues. So it's a big diagnostic challenge. So masked mycotoxins is another area people across the world uh, are, are researching. Of course, it has got a significant relevance to the human health because even cornflakes, you say 1 ppm down, it can be 2 ppm because we don't analyze the masked form of down. And yeah. it's uh, no mistake that the colloquial name for a dioxin valenol down is vomitoxin. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Because in pigs, what they what happens, Eric, you know, my professor in Canada, you know, we worked quite a bit. We we fed these animals and we put even observe for their behavior. If you hit around five to six ppm of dawn, yes, I think the pigs can start vomiting. But the level we see in the US and Canada around two, three ppm, at those levels we don't see vomition. We see more on you know dropping feed intake. And uh, yeah, so and negative effects, losing body weight and all those stuff there. So what treatments are there for these animals affected this way? The treatments are definitely, you know, once these aflatoxins were discovered, you know, in, in UK, 1960s, the Turkey syndrome, ex-Turkey, ex-disease. So since then, I think after 10, 15 years following that, there are a lot of uh, bentonites products, silicates, clay products, even the U.S., Quite a bit of work from USDA. They were all developed to bind aflatoxins. So they, they work quite well. Bentonites work quite well for uh, aflatoxins. But unfortunately, the one which is a major challenge in the US, DAWN, deoxynevolanol, it's not easy to bind them. They're very different molecules. So that's why you know we tend to focus more on the after effects of these toxins rather than preventing. It's very difficult to prevent it. There are some people working on breaking down this dawn through enzymatic approach and we are working on okay we can't bind it but you know can we improve the immune system or the gut health of the of the animals so that even the mycotoxins are there they can take care of it so so these are the areas where people are looking at but activated charcoal isn't a, an effective binder activated charcoal as you know that it is an open uh, kind of a ingredient for any Toxins, right? It is not specific to mycotoxins. So, what what will happen in animal industry? If you you need to use the high levels of charcoal to get the effect, and in that process, there is a chance that it can bind nutrients. We have seen 
when you use activated charcoal at high levels the phosphorus level goes down the leg weakness problems in animals so charcoal can bind in acute mycotoxicosis if you have a really acute mycotoxicosis in humans charcoal is used a lot even in and they they can use that in animals but you need to keep in mind that definitely charcoal is going to bind nutrients vitamins minerals along with along with the toxin so that is not going to be viable for our animal industry because you know putting those extra nutrients is is going to be expensive are you familiar with cholestyramine therapy hmm cholestyramine or cholestyramine cholestyramine yeah okay i think some people tried in in i think health canada or something in ottawa they, there was some work on that but i don't know a lot it's a fiber material isn't it it's actually a small plastic pellet it's oh. a an an ion exchange resin oh yes 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 yeah yeah so no, it is not used in, in our industry much no but i i remember that paper that is from i stay, uh, when i was in guelph i when i was re- reviewing that i remember but it is not practically used in our industry so well, the theory but is now nano, nanotechnology is also some people are trying in nanotechnology uh you know uh, by interaction of uh, clay with algae and all that you know how to increase the surface area so that more mycotoxins can be trapped in so those are some of the enzymatic detoxification also they are working on so quite a few nutritional enzymatic approach nanotechnology algae some people try to see if the algae can bind the mycotoxins so all these are being evaluated You know one of the things that concern me about nanoparticles is if they can serve as a vector as a transport mechanism for these toxins to bring them out of the body then isn't it conceivable that wild nanoparticles out in nature could also transport mm. them into the body yes yes i think that's true and uh, I, that is why you know i think one or two companies trying that but i don't know how much successful they are but i'm not an expert in this area <laughs> i must say eric so I really don't know don't know a lot on that. Yeah, it seems that we can perceive the benefit of something that can agglomerate these toxins and move them from point A to point B. So we see there's potential for introducing nanoparticles and attracting these toxins and then removing them, but we mm-hmm. don't seem to be analyzing the threat that nanoparticles in the environment might actually okay. be floating around agglomerating these toxins mm-hmm. and then we can inhale them. they get into the blood and brain okay yeah no i i never thought from that angle but uh, yeah you, you know we have to be we, it has to be sustainable you know that's what i was saying just like in ammoniation right there are a lot of new ideas but i think we all know that end of the day they have to be practical you know they should not leave any resi- and one of the main reasons when people were developing the mycotoxin binders was that they should not interact they should be inert materials you know they should not do anything any other things than what is intended for right so you know you try to use something uh, for some purpose and it it might work for that purpose but it start leaving the residues or something to something else so i think that that should be a very sustainable approach otherwise we will end up with with more problem or a different problem yeah like colloidal silver i mean it might solve a problem short term but it creates problems of its own exactly Yeah, yeah, with many things. I just many had a question things, yeah. for you that you you brought up earlier and you said there's a synergism between microbes plus the mycotoxins. And as we're seeing now, microbes in the ocean are processing our pollution, plastics and such. And so maybe just to expand upon this mm-hmm. nanoparticle theory which is a form of, you know, human pollution amongst many other polluting things that we do to this planet. Do you think that our our pollution that we're adding is is creating more of a synergism between these microbes and and molds and everything? Of course. I think you know climate change I I would say a, a little bit on the climate change you know because that was discussed a lot in the forum and also you know when I was in the US and other areas you know whenever I used to talk to the dairy farmers that you know whenever I talk about this they used to really get get their attention. because this is what they do you know why mycotoxins have increased over a period of time if you start if you start looking at that subject you know we are not doing crop rotation you know we need to rotate the crops right you should you shouldn't use corn over corn if you use corn over corn 
the residual fungus, Fusarium, for example, Graminearum, in the you know, 2021, after the harvest, the spores and the you know pathogens are right there on the soil. If you don't do the tilling, you know, plowing, we you know, in some places, the the spores are right there. And during the next year, in the rainfall, the, the rain splash brings those molds back to the top of the plant where the silking is happening. So, you know, crop rotation technology, you know, is very, very good to control the molds. But unfortunately, it's not happening. You know, might be happening in some African countries and some Asian countries, but in most rest of the world, it's, you know, seed drilling is happening, very minimal uh, tilling. And the crop rotation is not happening. They're putting on the same crop again and again. Climate change is also some of the papers we're discussing, how it is impacting the temperature change. The fungus is also changing their behavior. I would say that globally, the at least in Asia, I am seeing lower levels of T2 toxin. When I used to say 10, 15 years ago, a lot of T2 issues, now lesser T2 issues, but more other mycotoxins are coming up. So the fungus behavior is also changing. You know, we need to continually evolve, evolve this. And of course, the pollution certainly have an impact on these because these pollutants also interact with the with the with the mycotoxins with the with the pathogens so anything that causes stress on the immune system anything that causes gut on the gastrointestinal tract certainly will have an impact hello everyone alicia here one of the most common questions i receive from our audience members is this who can i trust to perform a thorough mold inspection of my home The Mold Guy performs mold inspections specifically for individuals who require a much higher standard of care owing to your complex health concerns like SIRS, Lyme, CFS, autoimmune issues, and more. Their testing and inspection process supersedes all current industry standards on purpose, making them thought leaders and disruptors in an industry unwilling to change old and outdated paradigms. Book your complimentary phone consult here at themoldguyinc.com slash connect. That's themoldguyinc.com slash C-O-N-N-E-C-T. When you talk about the, the, the nature of this, our interaction with mold changing, in the mid-1980s, people started complaining about mold in their houses in an entirely mm-hmm. new way. They mm-hmm. said that it was an inhalation problem, not yes. just something that you had to ingest or eat, but yes. just by inhaling toxic mold, it could make you sick. Yes. And this was so unfamiliar at the time that not even the CDC or NIH showed any signs of recognition that this is a hazard. You know, I got, I used to get called, I was surprised because I think they used to see my articles here and there when I was in the US and Canada. Sorry, I was based out of near Toronto. I used to get calls at least once in a month from most of the time it was from western part of the US, California and those areas. People used to call me asking about exactly like what you were, some of the podcasts I saw, your past podcasts. People are having experiencing the molds issues in their home. And one, one particular case I observed that, you know, they had no idea why they're getting sick and stuff like that. And after a lot of deliberation, and when they opened their bathroom, I think some of the places, when the tear opened that, there's a lot of mold growth inside that. And I do, I forgot the details to be honest with you. It's, it's like 15 years ago. But yeah, I, I, I think there are a lot more challenges. You know, we don't understand our, at the moment, and people maybe fail to recognize. And I think even the, uh, you know, we always, you know, I'm a, I'm a veterinarian from India. And the good thing about studying veterinary science in India is that we study health aspect and also the production aspect together. We don't, there is no separate animal scientist and there is no separate veterinarian in India altogether. We have to study together. So we have a bit of a more holistic knowledge about, you know, what is the role of nutrition in health and what is the role of mycotoxins in health? Because most of the time, is mycotoxins are put into as a nutritional problem because they come through the grains. We call them as anti-nutritional factors sometimes. So absolutely, I think you just imagine if that is happening in the US, just imagine the rest of the world where the hygiene is not good. 
how many people may be suffering from the exposure to these these molds and i i really thank you guys for doing what you guys are trying to educate the people on that and i remember my experience of molds is uh, aspergillus uh, fumigatus which causes brooder pneumonia and i do see this when i travel around in poultry farms where you know sometimes due to the rainfall colder temperatures they close the curtains of the poultry farms we do see these brooder pneumonia cases and it is not due to toxin it is mainly due to the fungus itself aspergillus fumigatus but yeah inside the the muscle inside the tissue of this chicken we see sometimes the toxin called gliotoxin and so yeah there are incidences of animal industry having to have the face the challenge with molds so that is why we use organic acids in the feed in the grains when we store the grains in animal industry we expose these grains to buffered propionic acid or sometimes a combination of propionic acid with other short chain medium chain fatty acids so that we can kill these molds you know and use that in the feed also if you are keeping a feed for more than a week at a farm we recommend to put this organic acids into the feed also so the different levels of management you know one of the scientists uh, i always refer from uh, indra uh, professor jawani he has written on a review article maybe i will try to send you guys there he has mentioned the 21 different interventions you need to follow in animal industry to manage mycotoxins so it is not just one so there is a process and i think yeah more awareness definitely has to be on the molds and mycotoxin issues no doubt the initial identification of trichothecene mycotoxins as having a human health effect was translated from the veterinary literature yes yeah dr ruth etzel of the center for disease control was investigating pulmonary hem- hemorrhage in infants and it narrowed down to the toxic black mold stachybotrys mm. and at this time the only literature she could find was veterinary literature yes and it turns out that these trichothecene mycotoxins do induce a neurological illness in horses yes it is virtually identical to myelotic encephalomyelitis ah okay now i got it that that toxin is not the one related to stachybotrys later on they found out that toxin as fumonisins and this fumonis yes fumonisins fusarium of yeah. fungus but a different types of fusarium fungus we call it as a fusarium proliferatum and this was first discovered this toxin in south africa but it it is there causing the problem but discovery happened in south africa in 1998 if i am correct there after the discovery they were able to connect this encephalomalacia they call in 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 horses softening of the brain they connected that with this with this thing. so it's possible that it can it if people consume enough it can be can be an issue we know for sure this fumonisin causes esophageal cancer it causes cancer of the esophagus so and stachybotrys i read more related to i think it belongs to the trichothecin a group i believe and there are two types of trichothecins a and b and stachybotrys is more related to the t2 group very toxic Uh, you know and uh, you know steatotoxin as you guys know it's not easy to do research because it can be used as a biological warfare so it's very controlled toxin uh, yeah so stachybotrys so i in human in animal books sometimes they write about it but it is more of inhalation if i am correct or through the derma dermatitis so dermal contact also can get the toxin inside and we've had a recently growing awareness of a chemotype of stachybotrys chlorohalonata okay which apparently produces purely immunosuppressive atrenones okay without the neurotoxic effects that would warn you to get away from it mm so there's some speculation that the danger of this is that you may have a compromised immune system and you would have no warning at all telling you to yes. evacuate absolutely you know i think it's they they really changing the you know we all know about the interaction between pathogens and and humans right so more we try to control them there is a way for them to come back at us so i think they are changing you know just like the viruses these path molds also and just imagine the kind of conditions we are providing to them 
I will give an example why we see a lot of mycotoxin issues sometimes in temperate tropical regions like in India is because the day and night temperature variable variation is very high. You know, in the daytime you have 40 degrees Celsius, in the night you have 20 degrees or 18 degrees Celsius. That is a lot of stress on the fungus because they don't like the variation in the temperature and humidity. If you keep them at the at the same temperature, they will not produce toxin. They just grow, reproduce, right? But if you keep changing this, then they produce toxins. And that's what exactly happening is with this, you know, storage silage practices. We see a lot of issues due to the variation in the in the temperature. And in US, we I think sometimes you see less problems in the winter time because it's pretty much you know, frozen, it, it, there is no chance for them to grow further. But once you open up the silages, once you open up the the silos, somewhere in you know February, March, you start seeing a, a significant increase in the problem because all of a sudden, from minus fifteen, they're back to 10, 5, 10, 15, and those variations are leading to mycotoxin production. Well, our specific problem. Keely, Alicia, and I, is that we've been hypersensitized to mold, and we can walk into a building and be made ill within minutes. And this is very difficult to study because obviously mm. you can't deliberately introduce this to humans yes. and reproduce this. But we've got plenty of stories anecdotally, mm. and doctors really refuse to research this because it's impossible to set up a controlled experiment to demonstrate this. Mm. But we can walk into any building and start pointing at a mold colony. And we mm. know by our own experience that our animals, our pets, can do this too. Yes. Yes. No, absolutely. I think I think you know that's that's where the, the challenge is, you know, many conditions, you know, where we the house, the condition of the house, you know, we need to be really careful. And I think now I believe there are more and more stringent conditions in North America to look at before you buy a house. There are certain things because I do, I did own a house in Canada. So, uh, you know, these have to be taken into consideration. And I think they should start looking at animal models. You know, I think they're very important, you know, that's, to look that's at what that. I was going to ask. Are you looking yeah. for hypersensitivity phenomenon in animals? Hypersensitivity phenomenon, actually, you know, the kind of toxins uh, we see in animal industry, I haven't seen much of those, to be honest with you, but except the pets. So because I'm not, I don't know that area quite well. But if you look at poultry, pigs and, and ruminant animals, we don't see a lot of hypersensitivity issues, except for the, I think uh, there is a condition in Australia called facial eczema. And facial eczema is also related to the IFS sensitivity. Other than that, we don't see a lot in animals, Eric, but definitely something we need to look at in pet animals more closely. Dr. Shoemaker described that in many of his mold patients, and he said it was called mold faces. And I thought faces was like a cutesy little name for your face, but no, <laughs> faces is a medical term describing a distinctive rash that appears okay. very much like lupus. Okay. In in this scenario, with this exposure related to some of these molds uh, he was referring or in general? He doesn't know specifically which molds are inducing this, but okay. just a generalized inflammatory response mimics yeah. the, the wolf rash of lupus. Oh, yeah. No, I think possible. And, then, and we are also trying to work a lot around this. As I said, facial eczema, they are caused by some of these uh, got similar to ergot toxins. Uh, you know, farmers are really facing a challenge and uh, I don't think anyone has found a really good solution at this stage. So I do get, you know, concerns from my colleagues in Australia, New Zealand, tries to how to manage this facial eczema situation. So but definitely, you know, I think we need to look at more and more confined animals or more animals within the buildings, you know, for longer, longer duration, especially pet animals. I think the possibility is more. When the toxic mold phenomenon first emerged, the situation was analyzed by people pointing at mold. They would say, this is it. This is the stuff. I'm having a problem with this. So researchers would test that specific mold. Mm, yes. And what showed up very often was stachybotrys. Okay. Now, later on, 
when they said, ah, well, let's develop a test. So we can test aspergillus, we can test penicillium, we can test you know a hundred different species of mold. And they started going in and what they found the most of, obviously, was aspergillus and penicillium. Hmm. So they started telling people, well, if you're sick, what we found was aspergillus and penicillium. So people go, oh, well, that must be the cause of my illness. And over time, this changed the focus away from the stachybotrys mm-hmm. and over mm-hmm. to what the researchers were finding the most of. True. I totally agree. I think sometimes the lack of facilities are, uh, you know, not able to do commercially. I think that is the big difference. You know, in my experience, what is happening is that some of the tests you can do at institutional level. Like for example, I am trying to see on the scientific media how can an analyze a marker for fimonacin, which is called a ratio of spingolipids, spingyanin to spingosin. There is a very good marker. I am looking at the literature. You know, how can I do this commercially? Because if you do that, then I think you can. Before animals are really losing the performance, we can identify that there is a fimonacin problem. This is a very good marker for fimonacin toxicity. But no one has developed a commercially viable kit. So, and over a period of time, exactly like what Eric said. They forget about fumaricin and then they might contribute to some other toxin. So I, I think it's important that once you identify somehow there should be an effort to make it really commercially available for testing. Well, there's also the confounder that when you do an assay for a specific type of toxin, it leaves out the beta-glucans, which are an important component of the overall exposure. Because many studies have shown that without the beta-glucans, the mycotoxin doesn't have the full effect. Hmm. That's interesting because beta-glucans, you mean to say they are produced along with the mycotoxins or are they... Are part of the structural component of the, uh, the fungus itself. Okay. Okay. Ah, Very interesting. I, I, I didn't know about that part because we do use beta-glucans in our industry more from the immune modulation properties. But uh, yeah, because, you know, mold produces more than just mycotoxins. Right, it's 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 a mix of a lot of things. So, I think we need to keep an eye, and that's how most of these mycotoxins are discovered. They didn't know anything, and then they started looking at it, the spikes and coming up, and then they do a bit more research and identify the molecular structure of these toxins, and then attribute a specific name. But I can tell you, so far in our industry, I don't. There are more than six hundred mycotoxins people are talking about, and every year new new mycotoxins be, are being added. How do we make it practical also is important. You know, we cannot analyze all the 600 toxins. So we need to look at some markers. Diagnostic uh, has, to be, has to be improved. Yeah, years ago when I got first got into this, the guy that gave me my education warned me that don't listen to people trying to sell you a specific mycotoxin test for your house because there are hundreds, thousands yes, of undiscovered yes. mycotoxins. True. Absolutely. And that's why my PhD and my professor always told me that use the natural contaminated material, not the pure toxin, because we never find a pure toxin in the field. So if you look at my research papers, you know, if you Google it, you will see always I use the the contaminated corn, wheat, barley as it is available in the US or Canada. And we fed that to the chicken, pigs and, and, and animals to see the effect so that it's a it's a complex. The fungus is also there in that feed because fungus is not completely removed. It's still in the grain. So we are fed the whole challenge to the animal, not only taking the toxin and in the pure form and feeding. So even if you take the same amount of toxin, let's say I am feeding 6 ppm of dawn from the natural sources and I'm feeding only 6 ppm dawn from sigma, buying a toxin from sigma and feeding to the animals. I found much more toxicity even I fed the toxin from natural sources as compared to the pure toxin because of the synergistic effects of these toxins. Yeah, I understand when stachybotrys was first isolated for study in a Petri dish, it didn't bother to produce any toxins. It didn't have the proper substrate. Yes. If it doesn't have cellulose to feed on, it can't produce toxins. Yes, conditions also, right? What kind of conditions it needs. So absolutely, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very interesting, fascinating, at the same time, a big challenge for, for all of us. And the other thing is the allelopathic response, where the synergism 
of the toxins working against each other stimulates them to produce more toxins than they would if they were growing in isolation. Yes. I think that's what the, the masked mycotoxin story coming, Eric, because of, I also try to understand why does this masked mycotoxin is formed. And we found out that scientists are saying now this masked mycotoxin is actually not produced by the fungus. It is produced by the plant. Plant as a protective mechanism to minimize the effect of the toxin on the plant. We all know that mycotoxins are toxic to plants also. Any living organism will be affected by the mycotoxin. So the plant now is all, uh, you know, it is attacked by the vomitoxin as an example. Now it wants to protect itself from the vomitoxin. Then you start putting a glucose as a sugar coat on top of the toxin, making, trying to make it less toxic. So that is the mechanism by the plant. But unfortunately, once this conjugated form gets into the humans or gets into the animals, it releases the glucose and all of a sudden you have more toxins available to cause the challenges. So absolutely, there are a lot of interactions. Amazing. The more you learn, the more you learn. <laughs> yeah, Thank this you guys. is such a great conversation. And I have a few more questions for you, if you don't mind. I know we're, we're reaching the hour mark here. You know, are you seeing an increase of reports from farm handlers or, or, or people who are taking care of animals and taking using the feed of them getting sick by contamination from the feed? Very good question. And honestly, I think probably I may not be able to be able to do the full justice for you because in the last two, two and a half years, you know, we never traveled a lot to the farms. But, uh, you know, I would say that whenever I go, you know, whenever the feed is being taken, definitely I always recommend them to keep it in an open space, use the gloves and all that stuff. But, you know, how it is religiously followed is is altogether a different question, right? So I think. Of course, exposure is there very much, you know, through the dust. But I remember in a, in a, when I was doing my research, of course, university was full protection gears we used. I think some farms they use, I, I think some farms they don't. So I think there is exposure, certainly. Okay, so you do think that maybe some farmers are getting sick, possibly yes. through Possibly. or inhalational exposure from these contaminated feeds? Absolutely. All right. Great. Another thing, and I don't know if this is going to make sense, but it's just been mulling around in my mind. You know, you, you say that mold and mycotoxins and a lot of issues are happening out in the farm, out in the field because they're not tilling and everything else. Yes. But we're also seeing a lot of mold growing in buildings. And I'm, I'm assuming a lot of these feeds are taken from the field and then into a building. I wonder yes. how much of the building, a contaminated building, is actually contributing to the contamination of the feed. Absolutely. Absolutely, it does. And, you know, that is why, uh, you know, I I did one of the course of a HACCP program from Texas A&M, uh, you know, and unfortunately, you know, whenever you do a HACCP program, you need to have a, a human health as the end point, right? HACCP is not used for something which doesn't have a human implications, right, generally. So that's why I did a project on aflatoxin M1 in milk uh, because it's caused cancer. So it comes from the, the raw materials to the animal and then gets into the milk. So absolutely, I think, you know, those, those possibilities are, are very high. And, you know, we certainly need to, need to keep an eye on this HACCP approach. Anything is hazardous, doesn't have to, be, in my opinion, doesn't have to be human endpoint but even if it is animal endpoint we should keep as a HESA program so that you know that you know whether it comes from field comes from storage you know if you aside if you understand that i think it's much easier to you know something coming from field is very difficult to control because it's out of your hand rainfall you know the soil conditions the nutrition of the soil all are, are impacting but something you can control is in the storage so that's why we go to farms we try to educate the farmers what is the importance of keeping the hygiene on the farm, you know, how to manage the silage. You know, you don't just grab the silage, you just use the silage cutter so that you are, the face management of the silage is good. So all these things, so certainly, you know, I spend a lot of time around the world, more than 35, 36 countries I traveled as an expert in trying to educate these people. 
I can toss out just one quick story here. Years ago, I was in a group called Autism Mold Fungal Research, and somebody came up with the story of a gal whose son had horrible autism and was reactive to many, many foods, couldn't drink milk at all. Violent, violent response to dairy. And somehow he managed to get hold of some dairy product to which he did not react, had no reaction to it at all. And you know how autism mothers are, and they are just completely, I mean, watching everything that their their children eat. And she said, how can this be that he suddenly did not react to this dairy product when the doctors are saying he's got a reaction to milk proteins? Mm. And after a great deal of research, she found out that this milk product came from a herd of cows that were completely tracked, records on all of them, and not a single cow had bovine aspergillosis mastitis. Okay. So the theory was that what he was reacting to was not the milk proteins, but rather to the cow's immunological response to aspergillus. And I thought that was the huh? most amazing thing I'd ever heard. <laughs> if if the, an autistic child is responding to such a low level of an immune response to aspergillus in these dairy products, this could be an important clue to other aspergillosis or aspergillus reactions in autism. Yeah, no, I think I think there's a lot to understand for sure. One thing I, I did want to sidetrack from that, but that was a great story, Eric. Thank you so much. Now all the autism moms listening to this are going to be tracking it down, <laughs> the mycotoxins in foods. But it says that your your group, Trial Nutrition, developed the MycoMaster tool, something that you referenced yes. earlier. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the current mold and mycotoxin testing methods for buildings are are lacking severely. Mm -hmm. uh, and this tool sounds pretty awesome. I mean, I was looking at it online. It's a smart device. It provides you information mm -hmm. on six different mycotoxins. And a lot of these mycotoxins sure. are found in people's, you know, homes and, and also in their urine uh, tests that they take yes. often. And it's a tool that gives answers within 15 to 20 minutes. So yes. you, you don't have to send it to a lab, which is amazing. Can this tool actually be used to measure mycotoxins in buildings? Interesting. I think as long as you have a, a physical material, because of course it is not aerosol. If you have, a, I think, a scraping or something from the building, then maybe we just have to do a little bit of calibration for that. Because but uh, that's 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 manageable because it, it it works on solids. It doesn't work on the liquids. Liquid only milk uh, we have developed because we can measure aflatoxin M1 in milk also using this instrument, not just the feed and the milk. Uh, but I think if it is as long as it is solid part and if you know minimum uh, an average composition, then we can build in into this because you need to have a specific you know configuration for corn we do feed we do different you know we, it's not the same so yeah it's manageable but it's it should be on the solid portion like maybe a piece of soil or something or uh, scrapings from the from the surface so those kind wow. of things now <laughs> how can we get our hands on this tool because we'd love to run our own experiments and if we find this viable i mean that's a new use case for you guys <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> no, certainly. Uh, let's be in touch. And uh, I don't think we use in the US at the moment, but uh, yeah, we can we can certainly be in touch and see what, or maybe you guys can send a few samples. We try to do something in our lab and see if it works, you know. So definitely. We are 100% going to take you up on that offer because just like I said, the, the current testing methods are, they're lacking. And so I know that HUD out here did receive a grant a professor at University of Oklahoma or Tulsa or somewhere mm -hmm. out in the Midwest is supposed to be looking into developing a new tool. We've tried to reach out to this professor and he has ignored us <laughs> a few times. <laughs> he said he was interested in joining and then I haven't heard anything from him. So I don't know, if, you know, life circumstances. I don't want to jump to conclusions or anything, but we are, you know, we're serious about educating the public and we really would love to expand upon any new technology or anything that exists or is being developed to try to figure things out because mold issues in America is like exploding tenfold. I mean, 
and we're talking about via building exposure. I mean, it's getting out of hand. I, I would definitely recommend you guys to join the World Mycotoxin Forum, to be honest with you. Yeah. I think that would be really nice for you guys to, you know, then I think you can you can give a talk there, you know, stachybotrys or other these toxins coming out of that. I think it's very important because, you know, why one of the reasons I joined you guys, because I did have a little bit of experience, people calling me in the U.S. on this subject, because, of course, it's a bit different from what we do on a day-to-day basis, more on the animal side. But definitely, that was my bit of an experience. I I, I knew that what's what you guys are going through there and how we need to support. But I would strongly recommend you guys to be on the World Mycotoxin Forum happens once in a year once in two years i think you know that would be help you help again for you to expand the knowledge and maybe people get interested and do more research which helps you guys i think we all would love a, a fancy european vacation right eric <laughs> <laughs> but yeah definitely we will we'll look into that for next year and uh, we might see you there but uh, thank you again, Dr. Halati. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention to our, our audience members or Eric, any more questions that you have for him while we, we let him go for the day? No, I'm good here. This has been a great conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah, this oh, is absolutely you. fantastic. And we will definitely- oh, th- thank you for the invitation. I was able to see the people who were, who were on your previous speakers as well. So it was uh, really interesting to be part of it. And, you know, the good thing about me is that I see in two worlds, you know, Asia as well as North America quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So I, I am also like you guys, very fascinated about mycotoxins. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons why I started mycotoxin is because my father used to grow. I grew up on peanut farms back in southern part of India and, and peanut farms and buffaloes. We used to grow, we were water buffaloes at home. So it's a great combination of phytoxin and milk. And yeah, we used to see a lot of challenges with the with the fungus, aspergillus, particularly in the in the peanuts when they are growing for for poor harvesting or whatever the reasons. And that's what I interested. I continue to do my master's on aflatoxins and PhD on rhizarium toxins. And you know, I did. I'm also fascinated about molds. Of course, toxins come from there, and and they're the largest spoilage organisms on the earth. You know, much bigger than bacteria can ever imagine, right? So uh, I think it's it's important that, you know, we need to be more aware of it and educate people, I think, and make the medical fraternity to look at that, not just treating for known diseases, you know. I think that's that's very important. So that would be my last conversation on this one. Thank you so much for, for your Thank uh, you so inviting me. Hello, everyone. I'd love to introduce you to the Exposing Mold team. We are passionate and committed to exposing the truth about toxic mold. Many mold-injured people are often misdiagnosed with autoimmune conditions, nerve damage, mental illnesses, and other chronic health conditions due to the lack of knowledge about water damage and toxic mold growing in their homes. The crippling effects of toxic mold has destroyed many lives. It has become part of our life's mission to expose this truth and educate society on the extreme effects that mold can have on the body. Our work is vital because of the lack of experience and acknowledgement from mainstream medical practitioners. Keely, Eric, and Alicia have firsthand experience dealing with mold exposure, and we make sure to address all the signs and symptoms during every environmental screening that is performed. Our team's dedication to learning and understanding the effects of toxic mold and educating and bringing awareness to patients keep us motivated. We know firsthand just how devastating the untreated consequences can be on your health, the health of your families, relationships, and life outcomes. If you or someone you know might be affected by toxic mold exposure, rest assured that you and our team will work together to find a solution. Currently, Keeley is offering environmental screenings, education on mold avoidance, Chinese medicine recommendations, and will screen you for past or current exposures. She will help you embrace mold avoidance as a lifestyle and teach you how your sensitivities and reactions act as a compass to recovery. If you need clarity on mold testing reports or remediation plans, she's your gal. Alicia specializes in developing mold avoidance strategies that meet your unique needs. She's experienced in extreme avoidance and can provide coaching for hotel, 
RV and trailer and campground living. Eric Johnson specializes in provider training, offering mold injury, hypersensitization, and patient relapse prevention education. Book your consult with one of our team members by visiting exposingmold.com slash consultations. Or you can also join our support group by visiting patreon.com slash exposingmold. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash exposingmold. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much. We, we really appreciate it. We'll put your information in our show notes below. If anyone listening is interested in reaching out to you or possibly collaborating, I know we do have a lot of physicians and scientists listening to our show. And so I think they get really interested and intrigued by our guests. So we'll link that information below. Thank you everyone for listening today. It was a wonderful conversation. We appreciate this conversation so much because it was so informative and we learned so much from our guests and and we really enjoy doing this work just because of the knowledge that we obtain and also the knowledge that we provide to you, our listeners. So thank you again for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Dr. Hottie.